Hey everyone, Tom Salemi here. Welcome back to the MedTech Talk podcast. You may have noticed we didn't put a podcast out last week. We're uh, shifted to our summer schedule. We're going to give you great interviews and conversations every other week instead of every week during the summer. We do not sleep here at MedTech Talk, but we, uh, we do occasionally slow down. So lots of great stuff for you to listen to, though. This week, we spoke with Kevin Hikes. Kevin, of course, is our old pal, our old MedTech Conference co-chair. He is also now president and CEO of the high-flying Relevant Med Systems. Relevant closed on a $58 million Series E round just uh, at the end of last month. And uh, we talked with Kevin, of course, about that but also about uh, a few other things in his career, some uh, great advice that he got that uh, helped him establish, uh, frankly, a really successful career in leading medtech startups. So for those interested in that track, you may certainly want to listen to this. But Kevin also has a unique perspective of having raised both an early stage round with MetaVenture, the company he had been with previously, and now Relieving Med Systems. So he's raised an early stage round and a late stage round, and uh, he has uh, some unique insights on that. Plus, he talks a lot about Relievant, which is something I hadn't really um, knew much about before. So it's a really fascinating company entering a, uh, an interesting commercial space in the spine. And uh, Kevin addresses all that as well. So welcome back to the MedTech Talk podcast. Again, we'll be uh, putting these puppies out every other week until Labor Day. And now let us get into this terrific conversation with Kevin Hikes of Relievant. <laughs> Kevin Hikes, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Tom. Nice to be here. You have a lot to talk about, so I'm very and a lot to do. I'm grateful that you're uh, taking some some time to talk to us, and I want to get into Relevant and its news in a few minutes. But uh, I don't think I've ever asked you the question that I typically ask at the start of these conversations: just how you found your way uh, into medtech. According to your LinkedIn profile, it looks like you went from Northwestern into Medtronic. Uh, how did that happen? How did you find your way to, to Medtronic and into the medtech industry? Uh, you know, in, in fact, I started out life as a, as a technology guy and had a degree in business and computer science um, before business school and intended to go back into technology and software um, coming out of Northwestern. But at that point, that industry was in a pretty significant recession. And given my technology interest, I was intrigued and having grown up in the Twin Cities, intrigued by medical devices, knew some things about them. So I started to reach out to you know, the big players at the time, Medtronic, Guidant, um, others, Edwards, Baxter, um, and got increasingly interested. And Medtronic had, uh, was launching their first, the first year of their first ever MBA rotation program, um, which was intriguing to me. So I was lucky enough to have the opportunity to join that company in 19, uh, I won't give you the date, a long time ago, but it was a great experience. And I, you know, obviously, I spent almost 17 years there in a, a number of different businesses and a number of different um, geographies um, and really had a tremendous sort of introduction to um, developing and launching and, and commercializing new therapies. So great experience. Did you feel that way six years later when the tech industry was on fire and you were... Uh... You were in the med tech industry, not taking advantage well, of an IPO <laughs> and some options here and there. Uh, you know, yes. Uh, and then I, I was a little, uh, I was chuffed, I guess, as they say in the UK, when uh, it then crashed and burned a few years after that. So, I, you know, I've seen the grass is always greener, but I've had a tremendous, um, I've been very fortunate and lucky for sure um, in my med device career. And I've had a number of points at which I kind of came up for air and said, should I try to do something else or maybe go back to my technology roots and uh, have chosen to stay put. And thankfully, that's been 
I think the right decision for me and the family. And um, I'm thrilled to be able to continue to contribute. Yeah, we're glad you did. And, and yes, you've done okay yourself. Uh, so let's fast forward. You were at Medtronic for uh, 16 years, and I'll, I'll do the math for folks. According to LinkedIn, if this is true, you joined Medtronic in 1992. In 2008, you uh, became chief commercial officer at Visiogen. So what was that transition like? Uh, you know, you're, you're, Was it um, an opportunity that came to you? Were you sort of looking to move into the startup world and you, and you sort of asked around and this became available. Talk, talk a little bit about that transition and what went into that decision process to leave a, a good gig at Medtronic and to uh, take a shot on a startup. Yeah, you know, and I had probably been, it'd probably been 10 years worth of toying with that idea and looking at startups and considering opportunities as they came up. Um, and at that point, there, there was not one that was sufficiently interesting, um, that was sufficiently non-competitive with Medtronic, uh, that sort of fit the kind of point at which I was in my life and, and, you know, the risk profile you, you, you can assume at different points in your life. So it, it ultimately turned out, um, that in 2008, I had this unique, um, situation where there was a really good startup. Um, it was one of the few, at that point I was working for Bill Hawkins and I was part of the team that wrote the strap plan. I was conflicted out of everything in med device except for teeth and eyes and teeth was the teeth were all in Switzerland and the eyes were all in Irvine, California. And in this case, a really interesting ophthalmology opportunity came up with a really good team, great investors looking for kind of a, a big number two to come in and help commercialize the product in the company. And, you know, got good advice um, from a number of people who said, don't, don't try to be a CEO your first time out of the gates, try to find the best opportunity you can and be part of the team. Um, and make it successful. And if you do that, the rest will follow. And so, you know, I followed that advice and this happened to be a great opportunity that was not in conflict with the, my commitment to Medtronic on the non-compete. And so it was a bit of a, a leap to move my family with three kids to California for a startup, probably a little more risk than I appreciated, you know, personally and um, as well as professionally, but turned out well, thankfully, a great little company, um, it was acquired by Abbott more quickly than we thought it would, but had a chance to launch their product and build a marketing team and a plan from scratch and, and uh, a sales team and uh, a great experience. And, and I was hooked after that, effectively. Is that uh, advice that you give to folks today to, to just look for the best opportunity? And what does that mean, the best opportunity? Just a really good technology, really good finance, uh, backing, just a really strong effort. What does a good, a good opportunity look like? So, yeah, so two answers. I would say, yes, absolutely. That's advice I give people, I think. And, and you get lots of flattering phone calls and they, they tell you you can be the CEO of this or that. And, and maybe at certain points in your career, that's particularly interesting or flattering. But I think, um, you know, in the startup world, in my experience, your, the, your, your safety net, um, unlike working for a company like Medtronic, where you probably have a, you know, a job for life. If you do good work and you continue to contribute, you know, there's a, a fair amount of maybe not as much as it used to be, but a fair amount of um, security there. In startup land, the security comes from the people you work with and the investors that are financing your ventures. And so to get started with the right group of people in the right sort of venture is much more important than to get started with a certain title, I think. And so much better to be the vice president of marketing or chief commercial officer or something um, than to be in, a, in an A-plus opportunity than to be the CEO of a B or C level opportunity. And frankly, first time CEOs don't often get access to the really good opportunities anyway. So 
I think if, if you're in an A-plus opportunity with the right people and investors, and it happens to fail, as they do, you've got an instant network of investors with other portfolio companies and management teams that are constantly being reshuffled and new investments coming in. That's how you find your next opportunity and the next one after that. And it's really more about who you work with and the good work you do for them that becomes your security or your, your safety net in this environment where you often change jobs every four or five years. So at least that's, that's been my experience with that. And you know, your second uh, question, you know, how do I describe an A-plus opportunity? And I, it's pretty simple. Um, and I didn't, uh, it's not rocket science, but it, you know, it, it's an opportunity that's in a significant market um, that's either large or, and growing or small and growing quickly or highly impactful. Number two, um, it's an environment where the technology is significantly differentiated. So you've got something that's unique or that you can protect and that someone would obviously ultimately want to own or incorporate into a bigger business because it's unique. And the third, um, it's, a, it's an environment where you have multiple potential future owners. And I've sold companies into ophthalmology and into, into CRM, to the strategics, and those in each case, there are two or three buyers at any given time, and that's tough. And so if you can find a market space that's got multiple interested future owners, that creates a lot more opportunity. It creates some degree of leverage over a process if and when you decide to pursue that. Um, and, and so it's not often you find all three of those boxes checked. Um, sometimes two out of three are the best you can do, but th that's how sort of I think about the sorts of startups that ultimately are successful. And then obviously it's who are the people behind it? You know, what, what, what's the caliber of the investors and the management team that they've built? Uh, more typical sorts of operating considerations there. So you always put more uh, weight toward the company itself than the, the title you're going to get. You don't want to be president and CEO of, a, of, of something that's short-lived. I have, yes. And I think that's been a successful strategy, at least, and with a lot of luck sprinkled in. It's, it's worked for me. Um, so that's what I advise folks that call me with, the, with that question. And I, I want to get into relieving, but I, I just kind of curious, you then moved into Cameron Health where you were uh, CEO, and that was a unique uh, situation. You talked about it uh, quite openly at the MedTech conference during the panel on uh, strategics, uh, Boston Scientific had a, a previous, uh, Cameron had a previous arrangement with Boston Scientific, which ended up acquiring the company after some, uh, some back and forth, we'll say. I have to think your experience at Visiogen made you a better CEO in that case, because that was a particularly, I'm guessing, a particularly challenging first-time stint as a CEO. Uh, it, it was, um, and a little more challenging than I thought it would be when I accepted that job. Mm -hmm. uh, but again, first-time CEOs don't often get the pick of the litter, so I knew there was, there was some uh, work to be done with that company, tremendous raw materials. Um, it, you know, it checked uh, at least two of those three boxes I just mentioned, you know, significant, massive market, highly differentiated product, sort of two or three potential owners would have been better if it was four or five. Um, but a great experience for me. And, you know, in, and Visiogen was a build it from scratch, design the commercial approach to the market from the ground up. Um, Cameron Health was a little bit more of a, you know, turnaround on some levels uh, on, on a couple different parts of the business, but certainly the commercial effort was struggling. So it was some sort of careful thought in with the team and, you know, how do we reset and rebuild and restaff our commercial effort um, and kind of change direction, which is a different sort of challenge, um, but, but a good one and a great experience for me, obviously a very technical um, business. We were burning three and a half million dollars per month. So an extreme, a great big startup burning a ton of money, um, needing a ton of money. So it was a great introduction to fundraising, um, kind of a brute force. 
introduction, but um, you know, with the help of a great team and very supportive investors, we were able to um, reset the company and move it towards the ultimate, you know, the completion of the clinical trial, the FDA approval, a fulsome sort of commercial effort in Europe, um, and ultimately, you know, triggered the Boston decision, which they chose to to exercise and acquire the company. And and there was a lot of sort of work that had to be done on that relationship um, during that three-year period as well, because it had become a bit fractured. So overall, it was a it was a tremendous experience for me, a formative one for sure as a leader, um, and as a first-time CEO, and with uh, much more significant exposure to R&D and supply chain and operations and IP than I had had in previous uh, roles. So a great uh, experience for me, and it's probably one of those situations where if it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger. <laughs> I think I came out of that a better leader and manager, but I had a great team there that made that possible. It wasn't certainly me alone doing that work. Now let's take a quick break from this conversation with Kevin Hikes to tell you about our upcoming Digital Healthcare Innovation Summit. DHIS is happening on October 11th in Boston. Both DHIS and the MedTech Conference are put on by Healthage. The Digital Healthcare Innovation Summit is not a gadget conference. It's a conference that really examines how technology is integrated into healthcare. So I ask you to uh, keep your eyes peeled for DHIS.net. We're going to be posting the agenda in the next coming weeks, and I can tell you our co-chairs, Bill Geary of Flair Capital and Robert Mittendorf of Norwest, both have an eye toward pharma and medtech and how they fit into digital health and vice versa. So there is something for you at the Digital Healthcare Innovation Summit. Keep the date open, October 11th in Boston, and uh, I'll let you know about uh, updates that'll be going on at DHIS.net. Now let's get back into this great conversation with Kevin Hikes. And we've talked about your next uh, venture, Metavention, in the past. Uh, you've been on the podcast a couple of times, and folks can, can learn more about the company there. But that's, uh, you, you were an operating partner at Versant in 2013, also chairman and CEO of Metavention, again, a very, very early stage company that had a uh, really interesting approach to, to diabetes. Was that um, intentional that you wanted to find an early stage startup uh, to sort of round out your CEO experience? Or was it just, um, I don't know, a, a matter of timing and a matter of luck that uh, you landed with a cool company like Metavention, an early stage company like Metavention? Probably more the latter. Mm-hmm. You know, I joined Versant um, with the idea of testing whether I wanted to become a, a VC in a, in a tough environment for VCs. So it's a realistic assessment of that. But um, shortly after that, Versant was seeding Metavention with a, a very bright um, Versant uh, associate who had the idea. So they founded him so sort of as an EIR, got the company started and asked me to, to join it as a consultant first and ultimately as CEO, sort of on an interim basis. Uh, turns out, as often is the case, my, my 18-month interim commitment turned into four years. Um, but it's because it's a fascinating opportunity. And, and I was a bit of a fish out of water as a commercial stage CEO running an early stage venture, but I had a great team. I had the founder and the chief medical officer, a great commercial or a great R&D team here in Minneapolis. We moved that business from, from Orange County to Minneapolis because of the wealth of engineering talent here, interventional cardiology, engineering talent in Minnesota. Um, so a fascinating experience. And, it, and that was a venture that in fact checked all three of those boxes. You know, we were, we were doing sympathetic neuromodulation and they are still uh, for the treatment of type two diabetes. So massive market, um, very significant differentiation of the product and the approach. And, 
you know, not five, but potentially 10 people that would love to own a technology like that once it was proven. So it had those, the, the mix of, you know, big opportunity um, across all three of those dimensions. And so I ended up staying a lot longer than I did. I learned a lot. It was a great experience for me. I hope that I helped move the company forward, was able to recruit my successor, Todd Berg, who joined in January of this year, was able to raise, raise $65 million, uh, in our Series C last year. Um, so a great experience and, and a, an interesting look at, at our ecosystem from the, from the other end of the pipeline, one that's unusual for me. I'm usually sort of doing more work in the tail end as companies commercialize. So great, great sort of way to round out my exposure to, to how you take a company from scratch. I was effectively the second employee of that company, which is, uh, was fun and a little scary some days, but a great experience. Oh, yeah, what a completely different experience that has to be. Now you're, uh, uh, I guess, more in more more familiar ground with uh, Relievant Med Systems. Take a take a minute, and just uh, bring us up to date on, on what Relievant does. Yeah, so Relievant is a 12 year old company now, um, very much in stealth mode until the last probably the last 12 months. But Relievant has developed a treatment for chronic low back pain that was based on some uh, fundamental insights into uh, discogenic pain back in the late. 90s. And there was a physician at Baylor who effectively discovered a nerve inside the vertebral body that he determined was a pain sensing nerve, which is highly unusual and was in fact the source of pain, the source of disc pain. And um, for, for years, 30 years, they had been treating disc pain. Disc pain is not something you typically operate on. If it's a herniated disc um, or an annular tear, yes, there are certain types of disc pain that, that you can do a surgical procedure on. But for the bulk of the 11 million people in the United States with discogenic back pain, there's really nothing. There's opioids and there's physical therapy and there's Cairo and there's meds, um, but there's really not much for them. And 80% of them fail to find relief for their pain symptoms. And, uh, and many of them end up on opioids. And so this is sort of an orphan population within the chronic low back pain spectrum. So of the 30 million, 11 and a half million of them have this discogenic pain. And for 30 years, they've been poking things in the disc and ablating it and, and, and trying to play with the disc to reduce the pain without much success. And so this physician discovered that the reason the disc wasn't responding and the pain wasn't going away was because the nerves that carry the pain are actually on either side of the disc. So it's sort of like a sandwich and we were treating the, the dysfunctional meat in the sandwich, the, you know, the, the pathophysiological stuff in the middle when in fact what we should have been treating was the bread the bread on either side and so over the last then 12 years we developed a system of tools and a radio radio frequency ablation system that allows a physician to access this nerve it's called the basivertebral nerve inside the vertebral body on either side of the disc and in fact um, the effect on the pain is almost instantaneous so it's, wow. it's remarkable it's a minimally invasive procedure it takes between 60 and 90 minutes it has an extremely attractive safety profile, and it treats a condition for which there is no, um, there is no therapy today. And, and I think what interested me, a couple, couple things drew me to it. Um, it this, this company, for whatever reason, eight years ago, decided to do a sham-controlled, double-blind, randomized trial as its pivotal trial, which is a bit of a roll-the-dice move. There have been many attempted we know of only one other successful sham controlled trial in pain and spine. And so ultimately that trial was successful. It led to the FDA approval and an extremely favorable label from the FDA, the only label in which the FDA uses the word relief for chronic low back pain, not just treatment of, 
but in fact relief. Right. So tremendous scientific foundation. And, it, and the company has now uh, started a second level one randomized controlled trial. We're, we're a third of the way through that trial. Um, so a tremendous commitment to science and to sort of doing it right. And the company got approval for the product in 2008 initially under a generic uh, indication and chose for 10 years not to commercialize until they could get the right label from the FDA and publish the data that they needed to ultimately be successful with physicians and payers. So a really sort of thoughtful, patient, measured approach to building this company's foundation. And that was really attractive to me. On, on top of the fact that it checks all three of the boxes that I mentioned, you know, massive market, highly differentiated approach. And again, you know, given the dynamics in, in both the, the, the spine space and the interventional pain and neurostim spaces, some interesting, you know, potential future, future partnerships. So it sort of met all of those three requirements as well and had great investors and a great team. And so I was very fortunate to have the opportunity to step in and lead the company out of the R&D mode and now into the commercial mode. So that second FDA uh, approval has been secured? The, the, the beyond the generic? Yes, that, there was... That, was, that was secured in, in, in 2016. Mm -hmm. The pivotal trial data was published in February of this year, and we initiated commercialization just in the last couple months. What transpired over the, the two years since uh, the FDA approval and the commercialization? What, what had to be done over that time? I know you weren't there, but uh, yeah. that seems like a long span for sitting on uh, uh, such promising technology. So one was the publication of the data itself, which took a little longer than expected. And the second, importantly, was the development of our second generation commercial system. So and that involves a, a, you know, a proprietary RF generator, a set of tools, a proprietary uh, bipolar RF probe. So a fair amount of sort of cleanup work after 10 years in R&D mode uh, to get the company ready for commercialization. But again, thankfully, they chose to wait until they had the right system approved by the FDA and ready for use commercially. And until they had the data published, um, we appreciate in this reimbursement environment, especially um, the data is, is paramount. And without um, level one evidence, and, and in our case, a sham trial, thankfully successful sham trial, uh, it's really tough to secure coverage from commercial payers for new therapy. And so that's why they're investing in a second level one trial. We believe that you need uh, both the sham controlled, highly sort of um, controlled sham data set in addition to a more real-world randomized controlled trial against conservative care. And with those two complementary studies, we believe we're well-armed to go into the payers to begin to fight for patient access to this new therapy. There is no current coverage for it. It's new to the world, and there's nothing quite like it. So we have to, uh, we have to sort of take an unlisted code approach and apply for CPT1 code, and in the meantime, fight um, fight and work with payers and patients and physicians to get this thing covered. Let's talk just a little bit about those conversations with, with the payers and, and, and achieving the code, um, obtaining the right code. So are you, you're talking with insurers now, with payers now, and what are those conversations like? You know, I think they are, uh, they're encouraging and acknowledging that this is really the tough work that's ahead of the company. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and the environment is obviously extremely difficult right now for any, anything novel. Um, getting it paid for has become the new you know, the new challenge that used to be the FDA and getting things approved was really the threshold um, in that in, in today's world. It's really getting it paid for. And so, uh, you know, we have fortunately with um, we will we will we will publish the 24 month data from that pivotal trial, the smart trial later this year. And we'll begin publishing data from our second level one randomized control trial, the intercept trial uh, later this year as well. So. The payers, at least so far, are telling us they've not seen a company come to them with a new therapy with this level of evidence or this amount of evidence. 
So, um, you know, we, we, we know we're in for uh, a long process, but the, the early signals are that all that work they did 10 years ago to prepare the ground is going to pay off and that we may well have uh, a slightly easier time than some as we fight our way through that coverage process. And in the meantime, we'll be applying for a CPT-1 code through that formal process in parallel with the sort of day-to-day work with patients and physicians on the ground. So the only question really is duration of benefit, how long this, this lasts? Yeah, you know, and it's interesting from a perceptual standpoint, they have been doing radiofrequency ablation for back pain for 30 years, mm-hmm. but they're, they're treating a different type of back pain and they're treating soft tissue in many cases. And that's a procedure that, that can be effective, but there's not a lot of evidence to support it. And in many cases, it has a transient effect. So it's effective for three to six months um, for certain types of pain, facet pain, for example. Um, so initially, when people hear that we're treating back pain with radiofrequency, they say, oh, yeah, I've heard about that. They've been doing that forever. It doesn't really work. Some people get lucky, and, but it doesn't really last, and you have to keep doing it. So we've had to be really careful and deliberate about how we describe our therapy. We're treating a nerve that's in a bone, and there, there, there are very few places in the human body where you have pain-sensing nerves inside a bone, at least like the, the basivertebral nerve. The good news is because it's a, an, an intraosseous nerve, there's no myelin sheath around that nerve. So when you ablate the nerve, it, it cannot, we, we don't believe it can regrow. And we know out to 24 months definitively, it does not regrow, uh, nor does it form a neuroma. So it's a different sort of nerve and, and different set of complications um, that you, then you'd find in, in some of the other more common RF ablation techniques. And then the insurers have said, hey, that's one of their first questions. Show us the long-term data, show us through your data to, to demonstrate the durability of this treatment. And thankfully, we can do that. That's, a, that's outstanding and, and so, so promising, too. Uh, and and who, would, who performs this procedure? Is it the, the surgeon? Is it uh, someone else? Yeah, there are elements of this procedure that are very similar to kyphoplasty. Okay. So the, the actual initial access to the vertebral body is very similar to kyphoplasty. There are 5,700 physicians in the United States who did kyphoplasty last year, split roughly half and half between surgeons ortho and neurospine surgeons, and pain interventionalists who are either interventional anesthesiologists, interventional physical medicine docs, PM&Rs, or interventional radiologists. So we will split, split our time and focus roughly equally between those two. We're more heavily weighted towards surgeons um, at this point, uh, but I think it'll probably shake out to something close to 50-50 over time as kyphoplasty has. And those are the natural group of physicians to approach technically their their uh, comfortable with the bulk of this procedure and with a modest amount of additional training can be very comfortable with our procedure. But you're sort of wading into some uh, waters where there's been um, conflict between specialists over kyphoplasty versus surgery, what's effective and what's not. Is that sort of simmered down uh, or are you, um, I guess, reigniting an older feud? No, and that's a good question. I I think it's, it's for the moment at least, has simmered down. Uh, There are clearly lessons to be learned from what's happened in the past. We are cognizant of those lessons. Um, there's a lot of, uh, actually a lot of the Kaifon team are part of the, the uh, relievant management team. Hmm. Uh, so there's a lot of history uh, and some scar tissue. Uh, so, you know, it's our intention to, um, to be neutral, to not, uh, not necessarily bypass any particular specialty as we introduce this. We're very cognizant of the importance of involving the surgical community early uh, and often in, the, in, in our trials are heavily weighted uh, towards surgeons uh, for lots of good reasons. So, you know, it's our intention to be thoughtful, learn those lessons appropriately, um, but really focus on how, how do we introduce this responsibly 
and safely? And, and how do we, we help as many patients who can benefit as possible gain access to this therapy? Wow, that's great. I know I said take a minute, but uh, such, a, such a fascinating space. And we all know someone who's suffered from back pain. So any, any relief in yeah. this area is welcome. But let's, let's talk about the, uh, the news of the week. Uh, you closed on a, a, a sizable round, $58 million. Uh, and that was, um, it's a Series E. And, and you can let us know sort of where you entered this process. But I couldn't help but notice that Endeavor Vision led the round. And uh, Alexander Schmitz and you were both at the MedTech Conference in Minneapolis on May 31st. So I have to think that we are directly responsible for this financing. Ah. <laughs> well, thank you for your support. Yes. You played a pivotal role. I'd probably owe you a fine or see or something. No, it's a great work. We're thrilled to partner with Endeavor. Um, Alex has been very supportive. Uh, I, I can say it was a competitive process, thankfully. Um, you know, when I arrived at the company in September, as new leaders often do, we sort of put everything on hold and retrenched and, you know, sat down with the team and looked at the plan we had and understood, um, you know, what we needed to do and kind of rebuilt our operating plan. And on that basis, then relaunched our, our, what had been kind of a preliminary fundraising effort, relaunched it uh, in full at J.P. Morgan. So, you know, pleased to be able to bring that um, to a conclusion as early as June. Um, so obviously an intensive, distracting process, but we had great interest in the opportunity and the market. Um, obviously, the opioid epidemic um, plays heavily into this space. Uh, we're part of that. We believe we have um, a potential solution to a significant number of patients who are on, are on opioids because of their chronic low back pain. So that helped fuel some interest. I think there's been kind of flagging interest lately in spine uh, in terms of new technology and investment. So I hope maybe we've rekindled some of that interest. And, and obviously the opioid epidemic creates um, significant incentives to figure out uh, as an industry um, how we can help with that problem. So that, that I'm sure played into this as well, but, but happy to have um, the round closed. Uh, we will use this uh, primarily to support the commercial effort. We're building out a team uh, rapidly around the country. Um, we're also continuing to enroll our second level one trial, the Intercept trial. So it'll be used for that as well. But really, it's uh, 80% focused on the responsible commercialization of Intercept therapy in the U.S. Now, I noticed a few things. Um, you you don't have any strategics in this round, or are there any in your syndicate at all? Any previously invest any strategics who have previously no, invested? No, not. So I mean, your commercial no. that that typically would be a time to bring in a strategic. Was that considered? Were they part of the? Did they put in their own bids, and you just opted to stay with institutional financing? Uh, yes, I think that was considered. Um, at this point, you know, we believe this is a significant opportunity, significant market. Um, our assessment of the, the, the total addressable market for the therapy based on our 5 million indicated U.S. patients is about $20 billion. So wow. you know, three times larger than the fusion market, um, 10 or 20 times larger than the spinal cord stimulation market as it is today. So we believe we have the opportunity to build a significant, um, independent, and durable business. And so our, our focus is really on bringing investors that share that viewpoint and that can help us finance that effort. Um, to take this company as far down the path as we can and to build significant value for the investors and most importantly to treat um, as many of these 5 million U.S. indicated patients and others around the world eventually as we can. So that's kind of driven our investment um, approach and our investors I think are supportive and see this as a, a long-term play that might someday be a very big business. 
So this sort of leads to my next question. This, I think, gives relievement over $150 million raised where if you're looking to sell a company, you know, that's a lot of capital to generate returns on. Are you, do you then see yourself, and you don't want to jinx yourself, but but sounds like you're building for an IPO. You know, I think that's one of the options, yes. We're, we're building a team that will be able to access and execute on any number of, of future financing pathways. Um, that's an intriguing one for us, I think. You know, we've heard from bankers and others that this is the type of therapy and story that would be um, that would lend itself well to an IPO. And obviously, it's something that resonates with the public, and everyone knows somebody with back pain, as you've said. Uh, and our mechanism is simple and easily described and well understood. And the sort of the, the fundamentals of a business like this are, are the sorts of things that would allow you to take it public and communicate the value effectively. So that's not necessarily our only path, but we're, we're keeping that option open and would like to have opportunity to do that if, if it's the most efficient way to finance the business. Okay. And, and just final question, you're, you're in a unique uh, position or, or, or time where you have been, you've raised large rounds for a very early stage company, uh, Metavention, and now relieve really a company that is uh, entering commercialization. So I think you have a unique perspective on the early stage and the later stage fundraising markets. Uh, what are your takeaway tips from raising money for an early stage company? <laughs> and likewise, what advice would you give to someone raising money for uh, a later stage company like uh, Relievant? Well, yeah, I'm not sure there are any tips or tricks. It's it's hard work um, and it takes a lot of luck and, you know, lucky timing. You know, the early stage environment is still really tough. And and in my experience, and, and when we raised uh, the early rounds for Metavention, um, there, it, it's, there are a limited number of VCs investing early. You have a much more significant representation by the strategics, thankfully, who've stepped in to fill some of that vacuum. But the types of opportunities that are getting financed are those that are sort of like Metavention, frankly, that are great big markets with a, a highly disruptive novel therapy, a white space opportunity. In those cases, the strategics are willing to step up. And whether it's a structured deal and kind of a build to buy sort of thing, or it's just a seat at the table, um, they're interested in how a, an early stage you know, blockbuster technology is going to be developed. And in some cases, they want to get access to, to it early so that they can control the clinical trial so they can set the stage for future reimbursement. So the big ones, they want to make sure are handled appropriately in their early stages so that they can be successful later. And so sometimes that draws them in and they're, they're willing to, to partner early, which is great. And, you know, we, we saw some of that benefit as we financed Metavention. The late stage stuff, um, it's not much easier, frankly. There are more people investing, but clearly the the reimbursement is is today's boogeyman. And the number of folks that used to say, "Hey, you know, you don't have FDA approval yet. You're too early. We're not going to get involved till that that box has been checked." Now they're saying, "Well, you got your FDA approval. You got a level one trial. Um, you got 83 patents, but you're still early, and we're going to wait until you check the reimbursement <laughs> box." And so you know, it's just sort of same story, different stage in the process. So you know, again. Um, it, you know, it takes hard work. You, the, if the fundamentals of the opportunity are solid, um, you can indeed attract capital, um, even if you don't yet have reimbursement solved. And in, in a lot of cases where there is not a reimbursement challenge, there's a fair, fairly healthy financing environment. So yeah. Easier late stage for sure. But if there's anything related to reimbursement that's still in question, you've got some of the same tough, um, tough sledding, as we say in Minnesota, that you, you have in the early stage stuff. So it's not fun. I'm thrilled to be done with that and able to get back to focusing on the business and thankful for the support 
um, you know, we've, we've gained from our new investors and our existing investors. Terrific. I know you have a lot to do, so I'll let you go. Uh, just remember when you're writing that check for the finder's fee, my last name is spelled C-A-S-H. <laughs> I'm on it. <laughs> Appreciate the time and the support of the, the conference, and uh, we look forward to uh, tracking we're leaving story. Thank you. All right, well, that is a wrap. Kevin Hikes, thanks so much for joining us on the MedTech Talk podcast. Dear listeners, thank you for listening. If you wouldn't mind doing us a few favors, uh, number one, you can subscribe to the podcast. Number two, you can tell your friends about the podcast. Number three, reach out to me. I'd love to hear from you. Uh, tell us what we're doing right, what we can do better. I am on Twitter, at MedTechTom. You can also reach me at Tom at HealthEG.com. That is the word health, followed by the letters E-G-Y. HealthEG is the producer of the MedTech Talk podcast and the MedTech Conference and many other great events. Go to HealthEG.com to find out more. Finally, as I said at the top, we'll be uh, sending out new podcasts every other week over the summertime. So uh, I've got a, a great one coming to you at the end of the month. We're looking at uh, a real innovative new way to uh, bolster the, uh, the venture effort in uh, developing new treatments for heart disease. So hope uh, you'll join us then. Having, hope you're having a great summer. And uh, tune in then for another great tale of innovation on the MedTech Talk podcast.